explain. I'm very kind. Well, thank you all very, very much. It's great to be here in my son and daughter-in-love's church. So we're delighted that they are here raising their children among you. Please take good care of those little Machia kids, okay? <laughs> uh, anyway, it's delightful that they are here. And um, I remember the early days of your church when you met in Lexington at what was known as the Franklin School. Anybody go back then? You do? Okay, sort of. Harvey Meppelink and Ernie Tavilla were dear brothers and friends of ours and um, just loved watching that church, your church, uh, be born and blossom. And now you're here doing fabulous kingdom work under a great pastor. And uh, it's been wonderful to just get to know him a little bit and uh, to see what God is doing in your midst. So kudos and congratulations to all of you for your faithful service to the kingdom of heaven here on earth. Um, Rick mentioned that, uh, yeah, I, I, I made a big step. I walked away from a very comfortable sort of ministry organization that I was a part of for 14 years. I loved my years at Vision New England. They were great. Uh, but God woke me up with a dream one August morning, and the rest is history. The dream, the discernment team, uh, the, year, the months to sift and sort our way through uh, to get to the place where a little over 20 years ago, on July 1, 2003, Ruth and I stepped away from that ministry and started um, LTI. We had a dream, a discernment team, and one donor check in our pocket. And that's all we had to say, okay, God, if you're in the middle of this, then we're, we're going to join you in this regard. Uh, our ministry basically exists for one primary purpose, and that is to help leaders and learners prioritize the care and nurture of their soul. We have a little, we have a little ditty at, uh, that we say, like a LTI parable that says, as the leader goes, so goes the organization. More importantly, as the soul of the leader goes, so goes the leader. So we keep plummeting the depths of the soul. And that's the word that I want us to reflect upon together this morning as we spend uh, these uh, moments together. And I understand since we're a little behind, I have until what, two? Is that? <laughs> I'm kidding, I'm kidding. Uh, we'll be done well before then. I promise. Now, I have a question for you this morning. I have a question for you, and it has to do with your soul. I'll ask it in just a moment. Uh, the word soul is, is, a, is a difficult and challenging word. It, it's often misunderstood. People really don't know what the word soul really means. But in essence, what the soul means is it's the animating, deepest part of you that God brings to life. Another way to describe it is your soul is the place where God and God alone seeks to reside. He's like selfish for that place deep down within you. And he wants to reside there. He doesn't want anybody else residing there. He just wants himself to reside there. Uh, the scriptures are replete with uh, verses that discuss and describe for us 
the priority of the soul from God's perspective. Verses like, praise the Lord, O my soul. So our, our praise comes from the depths of our soul. Or my soul finds rest in God alone. It's a, it's a verse about trusting God. We only find rest, true rest, in God, not in the things of this world. Or you shall love the Lord your God with what? Your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength. It's the soul that's separate from, and, and yet it's inclusive of, your heart, your body, your mind. Because it is the essence of you. It's the deepest part of you. Or he restores my soul. That the only place where we can get restoration for our souls is at the feet of God. Or the psalmist says, why so downcast, O my soul? Perhaps many of us can relate to that sentiment. Why am I downcast? Why am I feeling so low? And then the verse goes, put your hope, put your hope in God. Or what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? And this is where we, we come into our theme for this week of, or this series of the work. Our work matters because you take your soul with you to work every day. Sometimes you take your lunchbox and has some food in it. Sometimes you take your, your briefcase because it has your computer in it. But every day, no matter what, when you go to work, you're bringing your soul with you. And so it should matter to us not just about our work, but about our life, that we take good care of our souls. Because it's from our soul that we bless God and we bless one another. It's from the soul that we love one another. It's from the soul that we connect in deep friendship. It's from the soul that we experience deep anguish. It's from the soul that we experience the loftiest of joy. Because it's our souls that lead us in thinking and feeling and acting and doing in our church, in our homes, in our neighborhoods, in our communities, and in our workplace. The fact that you have a job in a particular workplace doesn't just matter to your bank account, it matters to God. And so as you enter into that space, as you are good workers, you enter in with a, an awareness, hopefully, of the fact that you have a soul. Now, it's, it, the, the Bible tells us that we have a heart and a soul, and the way in which I would distinguish between the two, we actually the three words, heart, soul, and spirit, lowercase s, are all used in the same way to describe the essence of your soul. However, the word heart also has not just the vertical heart for God, but we can have a heart for one another. So it has the horizontal as well as the vertical. The word spirit, lowercase s, is probably the most accurate, but it actually gets confused when we see it in the scriptures. Should they really have put it as a capital S or a lowercase s? So it gets confused between Holy Spirit and your spirit. Whereas the word soul kind of stands alone. It stands alone as the place where we see, particularly in the Psalms, our prayer book, that's our prayer book. In our prayer book, we see a lot about the soul because it's in the, the place of soul that we do our deepest work, our deepest work. 
And when that deep work in the soul is well-nourished and nurtured and cared for and, and kind of continually being dug up and yet, and yet reseeded and then watered again for it to grow, that's the depth of our soul that we're talking about. And so my question for you this morning is, how is it with your soul today? If you were to use words or phrases or images or objects to help you describe your soul, what, what would you bring to the circle? If we're sitting in a circle and we're a small group and we're going to begin our time together, and I would suggest you do this, by the way, <clears throat> begin our time together with saying, so how is it with your soul today? And we actually listen to each other, go around the circle. And maybe someone brought a, a, a plant that's sort of wilted, and you say, my, uh, my soul is wilting today. Or, or you, 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 you put your iPhone in the center of the circle and say, I am so sick and tired of being driven by this piece of machinery. I, I, I'm, I'm overwhelmed with my, my world and my work. Yeah, that's a good thing. L bring it in. Just helps you describe the state of your soul because for many of us, uh, that's our place of addiction. You probably are addicted to that cell phone of yours. That's where I get kind of personal here and nagging at you because that thing can actually destroy your soul. And in fact, it is destroying souls because we don't know how to live without it. We have to always have it with us. We always have to be looking at it. We always have to, you know, because you never know when we're going to be needed. I hear this from pastors all the time. Never know how I'm going to be needed. I'm like, well, let it go. For I'll keep an eye on it for you. I'll, I'll babysit it for you. Let's be on retreat together, and you just give it up. Here's the basket. Place it in. Let it go. And they're like, <laughs> I, I, may need, I may be needed. <laughs> and so, or they say now, the, the common thing now is, that's where my Bible is. <laughs> oh, my gosh. That's where your Bible is. Yeah, that's your Bible, capital B, and your Bible, lowercase b, because you're driven by it. You're written, you're, that thing is controlling you. You're not controlling it. You see, we've got to look at the fact that our souls are vulnerable. So when we say, how is it with your soul today? That's a good question to ask. And I would suggest you ask it as often as possible. It's far better than, you know, how about those patriots? Or how about those, you know, it's like, forget. No, that's not a good welcoming question that we should be asking each other. Even, hi, how are you, is kind of shallow. But if you could say to each other, so, dear friend, how is it with your soul today? That's a good question to ask. Historically, it comes from a guy by the name of John Wesley. You may have heard of him. He started the Wesleyan movement, from which most Holy Spirit-focused movements have come, because he was very much in touch, in tune, with God being at work to transform a heart and a soul and bring it to fullness of life. And he knows that only by the Spirit can that happen. So John Wesley would say, so how is it with your soul today, dear friend? And he would say that over and over and over again. And we now say it at our ministry as well. It's probably the most common question we ask each other. We be, I begin every board meeting with that question. We begin every staff meeting with that question. We begin every retreat gathering with that question. We say to people, bring 
bring your words or your phrases or your objects or your images or your pictures to describe the state of your soul because that's where we want to begin. We want to begin with an awareness of where we are today, right now. So I ask you that question today. You don't have to answer it out loud, but I want you to think about it in my few moments with you today. How is it with your soul, dear friend? How is it with your soul? It's a good question. It unpacks all sorts of things. When we begin to describe, and I'll, I'll hear things like, my soul is exhausted. Well, is it your soul that's exhausted or are you exhausted? Well, actually it's both. My body's exhausted, but I'm also exhausted. And my soul is exhausted. Or my, my soul has a headache. Well, your soul has a headache. Why does your soul have a headache? Well, because my kids are driving me crazy or my workplace is driving me mad or my ex the expectations that people have for me are way over the top. We have all sorts of reasons that fill in the blank to that question. That question has no right or wrong answer. What's important is, is can we be honest about where our soul is today? Maybe you feel that God has been rather distant rather than feeling real intimate with him. Maybe you feel that he's, he's allowing some hardship in your life and you don't get it. Why is the suffering not going away? Why is the sadness not lifted? And so we have our own desires. We have our own longings. We have our own answers to our own prayers. But it may not be God's answer to those prayers. God may be allowing your suffering and your anguish and your disappointment for deeper, more profound reasons than you will ever see. Because I believe that God wants to redeem every ounce of your and my pain for his glory if we let him. That's key. If we let him. Because many of us, we have prayer requests. We want this and we want that for our loved ones, for ourselves, for our work, for our pocketbook, etc., etc. And we don't understand why God doesn't give it. Well, because God has his ideas for us and we have ours. And we need to figure out how to mesh those two. We need to figure out how to peel the onion of our soul back one layer at a time in order to see with greater clarity who God really is and who we really are. And the more we see who God really is and who we really are, that's how we grow. That's how we mature. That's how we become more like Jesus. It's not one or the other. It's both. Because God made us individually, uniquely. No one has your facial structure. No one ever has or in the future will. You have your own facial structure. That's why we can... They can do facial recognition because it's unique. Your face is unique. Same with your thumbprint. It's unique. We may all have thumbs, and the thumbs may work in a particular way, but if we all were to put our thumb on an ink pad and then put it on a piece of paper, it would be unique, unlike any other, because that's God. The true nature of God is that he has created us in his image, in his likeness, for his glory. And what he wants to capture more than anything within us is our souls, the deepest, most eternal part of us. It's the only thing that's going to last is our souls. We're going to die one day and our body's going to go away. 
but our soul is going to be eternal. So why do we just disregard the soul so frequently and just assume upon God and ourselves and each other that our souls are in good place? No, many of, our, many of us have torn apart souls, hurting souls, difficultly painful souls. And we need to say, wow, you know, what do I do with this? And so often what we ask secondarily to how is it with your soul is, how are you noticing God today? That's another good question that goes along with how is it with your soul and then secondly, how are you noticing God? Because when we have eyes to see him and ears to hear him and hearts that pound in his direction and hands that are open to freely receive from and then give to him, then we're living a rich and abundant life. But most of us have some eyesight problems. Instead of seeing God, we see dollar signs or we see something that's not good for our souls, but we keep going back to it because our addictions have allowed us to do that. And we've chosen a lifestyle that our eyes are not on God, they're on the things of this world. Or our ears aren't really right down to the passages of the scriptures so we can hear God as, as frequently and as clearly as can. No, our ears are listening to all sorts of clutter and clamor and the noise of this world and the confusion of this world and the things of this world are filling our ears more than the things of God. And our hearts St. Augustine who said, my heart is wicked, it's needy, and it doesn't rest until it rests in God. And St. Augustine wrote about all the various affections that pull our heart and our soul away from God. And it's mostly the things of this world. It's mostly things of, as Richard Foster said, money, sex, and power. It's in those three categories that are more attractive to us than the things of God. Let's be honest. Let's be honest, we're praying, we're calling out for God, but we have our answers in mind as we pray. Imagine if you came to God without specific answer to your prayers and said instead, God, I want to know you. I want to receive from you. I want, I want to continue to delight in you. I've got these issues, I've got these people, these problems, I've got these aches and pains myself, but I'm going to just bring them all to you instead of carrying them like a big sack on my back. And once I take that sack off and I lay it before God, God says, thank you very much. I've been waiting for you to give me that sack of concern. And then we say, open it. Notice the people that are in it. They're, they're the people that I love and, and I'm caring for and desirous that they have more of you and, and, and we just take out of the sack and we just hand it to God, hand it right back to him. Because frankly, that's what God loves to do. God loves to take all of your burdens, all of your cares, all of your concerns, all of your heartaches, all of your disappointments, and he wants to carry them for you. He doesn't want you bent over and trying to carry it on your own. So when we learn to trust God, we learn to release the cares and concerns that are weighing deeply on our souls and give them back.
to God. God loves to make himself known to us. And God loves to carry our burdens. That is the true God. And the nature of the true God is that he's, he wants to be intimately acquainted with you. Not because he can't and, and isn't, but because he is. But he wants you to participate in that. He is intimately acquainted with you. He's all present, all knowing, all powerful, all present. And you don't have to worry about that. What we need to concern ourselves with is how much we're trusting and entrusting our lives in his hands. And how are we noticing his presence, his power, and his peace? Our little granddaughter, Nate's five-year-old, Brenna, loves to play hide-and-seek when she comes to the house. And she'll, we'll count to 10, and she'll disappear into another room, and she'll go hide. And, and then I'm done. I'm saying, you know, ready or not, here I come. And I'm starting to come towards, you know, leave, leave whatever room I'm in. And I hear, woo-hoo. <laughs> woo-hoo. And I'm like, Brenna, no, I'm supposed to be finding you. And the competitive me is saying, don't tell me where you are. You know, because that kills the, kills, the, kills the game. But actually, she gets more of God out of that than I do. Because that's God saying to us, Woohoo! I'm here. Hello, you're doing life on your own strength, on your own power. And God is saying, Woohoo, Steve. See me over here. It's like the father playing hide and seek with his kids and and always having the foot out behind the curtain. You know, he's, he's behind the curtain, but the foot is always out because the father wants the child to be able to find him easily. And that's what God does. He just puts his foot out. He puts his foot out. He's not mysterious. He's not hidden. Yes, there are times when we feel like he is. He feels distant and, and we're in a hard, difficult, painful space. Yes, that is very real. But that's not the daily for most of us. The daily for most of us is that we have blinders on our eyes, something over our ears that is keeping us from seeing the fullness of God. That's the reality. And so instead of a wide open soul, we have a closed up soul. And our soul has been, has been protected. Um, we only want to let certain stuff in instead of saying, okay, God, you know, have your way in me. There's a big difference between being open-handed and closed-fisted. And it's a choice that he gives us every day. He says, go and make your choice. What kind of day do you want? A wide-open day or a closed-off day? And most of us have some kind of closed-offness to us because we really don't want to see and don't want to prioritize, don't really want to spend time in my prayer closet, don't really want to go to church again, don't really want to write that experience that big check to go to, mission, to the outreach of the church. You know, there's, there's just this part of us that's rebellious, continually rebellious, because we've chosen our own way or we've chosen the ways of the world and not the ways of God. Because frankly, when you talk about donations and, and uh, offerings, many of us don't even know how to give a tenth away. That's, but that's Old Testament. Old Testament is 10%. New Testament, 
100%. How about that? You gotta figure out how you're gonna give 100% of your resources away. Because we're New Testament people. We're not Old Testament people. So if you're whining about 10%, how about 90 more? It'll probably awaken your heart to truly trust God when you finally make big, generous decisions about your life. If you want to be like the true God, you be generous, unquestionably generous. And I think that's the best marker of any healthy church is to be known to be generous. I'm diverting away from my notes because uh, I know you're going to stay until two. Um, so anyway, we, when we're generous, it's because we're big-hearted, we're, big, we're abundant livers of the God, of the life of God. So when we are creating this understanding of a true God and wanting to live like that true God and be our true selves in relationship with the trueness of God, we are practicing a preference for him. We're practicing a preference for him. That's, that's the phrase that I'd like to suggest is what makes for spiritual discerning. When we're discerning in our lives, we're practicing a preference for him. Similar to what Brother Lawrence wrote in the 1600s when he was a, a lay brother in a Carmelite order, and he wrote the, the classic, Practicing the Presence of God. Maybe you've heard of it. It is a classic. I encourage you to read it. It's not, a, not long, but it's all powerful because what he's saying is when he goes to work for the community in the kitchen as he's washing pots and pans, he's doing it in the presence of Almighty God because he's noticing the presence of God in his midst. He's not just going about you know, washing the pots and pans. He's saying, God, I want to be present with you as I wash this pot, as I wash this pan, to pray for my fellow brethren that live in this community with me. And to practice that, that is practicing the way of God. And that's why I use the phrase practicing a preference for God, because one of my mentors, Reuben Job, put that phrase together to describe this big concept called spiritual discernment. And spiritual discernment is, in essence, noticing God, noticing him together, and then noticing him as we're making decisions for the future. It's not just about decision-making. It begins with noticing God. And as I said, God loves to make himself known in the beauty of creation, when we see a beautiful sunrise or sunset, or when we see the wide-open expanse of the ocean, if we see the sunlight, if we see the changing of colors on the trees, we say, praise the Lord. When we come to worship and we're led by a great worship team, we're praising God together. We're noticing God and we're celebrating the goodness of God. But what about the rest of your life? What about the rest of the hours? Are those not to be noticing? No, no, those are the serious noticings. Because in places like this or when we see the beautiful outdoors, those are, those are practice sessions for seeing God when he's not as visible, when he's kind of hidden and I don't really get where he is. What's he doing? Why is he allowing this particular issue to emerge in my life? But all throughout the pages of Scripture, we are shown story after story after story after story of God making himself known. And he loves to do so. And he is creative in doing so. 
For Abraham, it was dreams. For Moses, it was a burning bush. For the children of Israel, it was a cloud that was leaving, leading them in the sky. For Samuel, he had a mentor, Eli, who said, go, keep, go back and say, speak, Lord, your servant is listening. For Mary, it was an angel. For the shepherds, it was a group of angels. For the wise men, it was a star in the sky. Every page, every story of the scriptures is God saying, come close, draw near, follow me. Come close, draw near, follow me. I've got your best interests in mind because I created you uniquely. There's no other face like yours. There's no other thumbprint like yours. And I am intimately acquainted with you. And I want the very best for you. <clears throat> it may not look like the American dream that we've become believers, that that's what it's supposed to look like as Christ followers. No. Do, do you know that today is the most vibrant and exciting day for the church in all of history? Do you know that there's more conversion going on today than ever before? The reason why we don't know that is because we live in North America. We're missing out. The rest of the world is experiencing revival over and over again. So your global impact is to support people that are making the best day ever in history a reality. It's today. But we sit in churches like ours and we wonder, you know, what do you mean? Politics, money, you know, this. Because we're fighting with each other. We like to fight. We like to protest. About important things, yes, these are important issues. But it's not always for the advancement of the gospel. And we get torn asunder, and we get thrown off course, and we get major league distractions that are keeping us from the most important thing. And I would suggest the most important thing is for you to take care of your soul and to walk with God and to help each other do the same thing because that's what a church is all about. A church is to help each other get closer to God. That's, the, that's what a church is supposed to be. And you're in a church like that, where there is opportunity, plethora of opportunity, to know and to love and to serve God. There's one particular story that I like the best of all of these, to capture the essence of what I'm trying to say this morning. And it's in Luke chapter 24. You're familiar with this passage. It's the road to Emmaus. It's, it's a... It's a message that belongs like on Easter Sunday or the week after, but forgive me for being in the middle of November doing this, but um, it's a great story. And let's, I would like us to look at it. My son told me I read too fast the first, the first session, so Nate, I'll try to go a little slower this time. Um, I don't know if it was because he was having a hard time following me, or, but anyway, <laughs> I love you, Nate. Uh, but anyway, all right, here we go. <laughs> Uh, starting with, um, let's see, what verse is this? 13, yes. Now that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. And as they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them. But they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them, named Cleopas, asked him, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem 
who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? What things? Jesus asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what's more, it's the third day since all of this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but they did not find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see Jesus. Jesus says to them, how foolish. And how slow to believe that all the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. And as they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he were going farther. But they urged him strongly, stay with us, for it is nearly evening. The day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. And when he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. And then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. And he disappears from their sight. They asked each other my favorite question in all of Scripture. Were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us. They got up, returned at once to Jerusalem. There they found the eleven and those with them assembled together, saying, it's true, the Lord has risen and has appeared to Simon. But these two told what had happened on their way and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread. What a fabulous story of recognition, of seeing, of noticing, of preferring God. These two disciples, Cleopas and another person. I like to think of Cleopas and his wife. I hope it is. It's it's an unanswered question, this side of heaven. We'll have to ask God, who was that second disciple? And the reason why I say that is because they're going home. They're going home to Emmaus. They're entering into their home when they're inviting Jesus to come and stay with them because the day is ending. And he comes in and stays, and he sits around their table, and he breaks bread, reminiscent of the do this in remembrance of me that we continue to do every time we come to the the Lord's Supper. Do this in remembrance of me. He's doing it right here in their household in Emmaus. And he's saying to them, this is what I've come to do for you. And he says to them on the road, don't forget what the prophets have told you. Because the prophets told you at, in Hebrew school that the, that the, the Messiah was going to come and he was going to have to suffer. And you're sad, you're downcast that you just saw Jesus die on the cross and suffer. But that's what it was supposed to be. And so this slow, gentle reveal of Jesus on the road to Emmaus is the eyes of their heart are opening to see the true God, the true Jesus. And they say to each other, wow, 
Were your, was your heart burning? My heart was burning as he, as he opened the scriptures, as he broke the bread, and they're sharing this burning heart experience. Not, not a burned out heart, and not heartburn. This is, this is the true burning of the Spirit of God, his presence. And that's what they're experiencing. That's where they are. That's where they're residing. And this passage, we could, we could spend hours. I want to encourage you, go and read it on your own. And, and notice their road to Emmaus and your own road of your life. Because what Jesus did for them, he does for us. And I'll get to that in, in just a moment. So Jesus in this passage has that slow reveal, but eventually it becomes obvious to them. And that is how God makes himself known to us. There's a lot of obvious times when he says, this is me, yoo-hoo, yoo-hoo, it's me. And we see him and we need to celebrate him. When the, when the clouds break open and the sun shines and, and when the trees are turning, you know, yellow and, and, and orange and red and we need to give God the praise for what God is doing. And we need to keep saying to each other, did you notice that? Did you see that? That was like a wow. Ooh, yes. Did you see that? Yeah, how's your soul? My soul is, oh my gosh, my soul is over the top with joy. Or I, I've just lost a loved one. And I'm sad. And I'm, my heart is breaking. And you're coming alongside me and you're putting your arm around me, not trying to fix me or correct me or change anything about me, but just be with me, be present with me. You see, when we get a handle on the importance of the soul, the soul that matters to God and should matter to us, and when we prioritize the soul and ask each other how we're doing at a soul level, we begin to notice God at that level as well. And we have a ever, ever deepening experience with the God of the universe who loves to make himself known to us. So times, there are going to be times when it's obvious. There are going to be times when it's not so obvious. And we have to wait. Who in, the, who in the room loves to wait? Friends, I've never met one person that loves to wait. If, when I finally find someone that loves to wait, I want to spend like three days with them and, and learn more about why, why it is that they love to wait. But the... the the biblical text tells us, wait upon the Lord. We're to wait upon the Lord. So yeah, it means when you go grocery shopping for Thanksgiving tomorrow or the next day, not today because today's the Sabbath, uh, but when you go shopping, cho choose the longest grocery line and then notice the state of your soul and notice how you're feeling behind like the slowest person and the slowest cashier. Are you going to go tap, 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 tap? Come on, come on, people. Or could you say, hmm, I wonder if there's something from God here. I wonder if I just sort of let the, that person go in front, or if I help that person. I wonder if I paid that person's grocery bill. I, I, wonder, if, I wonder if I could pray for the people that are here all crazy, running through the grocery store to get ready for Thanksgiving. You see, friends, when we learn to wait, when we learn to slow down, when we learn to not be in a rush, when we learn to let go of our own agenda and say, God, I'll wait. However long it's going to take, we'll wait. I'm convinced, because I've had my share of pain and heartache and disappointment and suffering, that when we persevere, 
in that suffering and we wait for God to redeem that pain, he does for his glory, if we're willing. Every ounce of pain that you have today or have ever had, God wants to redeem for his glory. We simply need to let him do so. So waiting. It's like, it's like being on a sailboat in the middle of the, of the sea and there's no wind. And the sailor has a couple of choices. The sailor could put the oars in and move that sailboat. The sailor the, could start the little engine, the, the little putter in the back and just move forward. Or, like what most sailors love to do, wait for the wind. Because when the wind comes and takes that boat forward, there's joy like never before. I, I don't know a sailor that doesn't love wind. They love wind. Because the wind of the Spirit, when the wind of the Spirit blows, there's, there's newness and abundance of life. You see, friends, waiting is an important part of our life with God. You think Abraham wasn't tested when he took Isaac and had Isaac carry the wood for the fire, and then he was about to place his son on the fire, wait upon the Lord. And God said, no, 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 not Isaac. The ram in the thicket. Let's place him there instead. Waiting. Waiting. Maybe you're waiting right now. Waiting is good for your soul. And then thirdly, not just obvious, not just times to wait, but finally, when we, need, when we have choices. We have good choices to make, and we've got, we've got to figure out which is the best. God may say, all of those are fine, you choose. Or he may say, no, not quite yet. You know, reconsider. And what do we need? We need some sort of process to discern the will of God, or, and we need a community. We need, like your pastor has, John, I have my spiritual director. Who do you go to? Who knows you best, loves you most, and can help you see God and make a God decision rather than a good decision? Options. When we have options, we've got to ask God to help us, to guide us, to give us what only the community can do for us. So friends, my message this morning is pretty simple. Consider the needs of your soul. Practice a preference for God. Do so in community. And you will receive and experience the abundance of life. My wife and I have lived in our home for 40 years. And we've replaced the hot water heater four different times. They go about 10 years. The last time we did, the plumber came and said, well, you not only need a new hot water heater, you actually need more water pressure for this house. He's like, you can't sell this house with this low water pressure. It was like 35 PSI. I said, well, so who does that? Well, sir, you have to do that. Who pays for that? Well, sir, you have to, you have to pay for it. Well, where do I get help to do that? Well, like, they gave us the name of this group, a bunch of burly guys who love to dig in dirt and come and destroy, well, not destroy, put, put houses together. You know, so we hired the burly guys. They came and they started digging out front and said, okay, we've got to find the, where, it's, where the water's coming into the house and then we'll just go straight out to the main. It was about 100 feet to the main. So they started, they dig a hole and then they pull a pipe and they broke the pipe. 
and they dig another hole, pole broke. So they had to dig up the whole 100 yards, 100 feet, and go down six feet, get rid of that rotten uh, pipeline to our house, and replace it with copper. So they rolled the car, the, all the copper into our, put it into our basement, and then pulled it out from inside and made it out to the street. We've got brand new water. And the guy said to me, it's amazing that you've had any water pressure at all. I said, what do you mean? He's like, well, when I, when I tested at the base of the house, you only had that much, that much pressure. And he pointed to the end of his dirty pinky finger. And I said, well, that's fascinating. Well, you know, so I sort of just, you know, just sort of held that. And I said, okay, well, we're, we're going to put our house back together again. So we put our house back together again. <clears throat> and then Ruth came down. She had taken a shower. She said, that shower hurt. I've never experienced such water pressure before. So we started playing. We just started, okay, you go to the kitchen sink. I'll go to the bathroom. You flush. Let's see if we can do all these things at the same time. And sure enough, we could. We had water pressure like never before. We had raised our kids in low water pressure, thinking everybody in our neighborhood has low water pressure. Everybody in Lexington must have low water pressure. So we just learned how to put up with it for 30 years, 30 plus years, before we got our new water pressure water heater. We came down to the basement after playing all those games. We realized, oh my gosh, there's a flood in the basement. <clears throat> the flood had come because our forced hot water system for heat exploded. And the water just poured out everywhere. I called the plumber and said, you've got to come back. I've got a major mess on in my hands. And you need to tell me, is my whole house going to implode as a result of these pipes? And he's like, no, 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 calm down, sir. We'll just fix this. So they fixed it. They left. And uh, we've had great water pressure ever since, and our kids never experienced that. <laughs> the point of my story is that in my life, and perhaps in yours too, you have tolerated just a nailhead's width of God. Maybe you've shown up on a Sunday morning, maybe you've thrown a little check into the, into the offering plate, maybe you've like done a prayer here or a prayer there, uh, but you haven't really seen the fullness of your life with God as a result because we're more stingy about that than more extravagant about it. The love of God is extravagant. The love of God is abundant. The love of God is free and generous. The love of God is expressed fully on the cross where Jesus came and gave of himself sacrificially and completely, 100%, so that you and I can live the abundant life and the abundant life, my friend, the abundant life is when we learn to notice God in everything. And when we notice God in everything, we can learn to trust him with everything. So my encouragement to you today is to live extravagantly in the love of God. Don't choose the cheap way anymore. Don't just put up with the, the nail head's width of God. Instead, let God infuse your life and fill your soul and take you to a deeper, more abundant walk with him. I'd like to pray for you to that end. And I want us to remember that in this passage, when Jesus walked along with the disciples to their home in Emmaus, he walked alongside them, even when they were blinded by his presence.
He made his presence known to them by asking some very simple questions. He joined them in their confusion. He asked them questions rather than shaming them. He instructed them with the truth of the gospel story. He listened intently to their desires. He, he warmed them with his empowering presence. And he provided just the right hospitality when needed. As they opened their home, he opened their hearts. So Lord, I pray for all of us in this room today. We want our hearts opened. We want our souls refreshed. We want to walk with depth, not with shallowness. And we want to experience the abundance, not the scarcity, of our life with you. So I pray that Mount Hope would be known for its love, that Mount Hope would be known for its abundance of joy and love and relationship with you and with one another. I pray that Mount Hope would be known as a generous, loving church. I pray that Mount Hope would be known uh, because of the care and nurture of the soul rather than anything else this world could offer. So have your way in the hearts of every person related to this great church. Capture their hearts. Remind them of how much you delight in them. And as you give and as you forgive and as you love and as you delight over them, may they feel your empowering presence. May that be their vision. May that be their reality now and in the days ahead. In Christ's name and for his glory.